maybe more. <laughs> okay, well, let's get started. We'll, we'll, let's pray. <clears throat> well, Father, we're here, and we thank you for gathering us together. We thank you for the Cottonelles just opening up this place that we can come and gather in worship and comfort, Lord. We um, ask you to just bless these open Bibles, bless the study of your word. We pray that we would leave this place knowing your word better and therefore knowing you better. We just ask your grace upon all of us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please forgive the little hat. I got something going on in my head. I was hoping we were going to be outside with it cold. I'm like, sweet, that works, but we're all nice and cozy in here, and I still got this hat on, so forgive me for that. Um, If you want to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 7, we're going to try to cover the entirety of Acts chapter 7 today, so if you don't believe in miracles, we're going to try to perform one in Sunday school right before your very eyes. Now, Acts chapter 7. We're really continuing in this larger section. Uh, I, I entitled this, this larger section, The Acts of Stephen. And I'm entitling this smaller uh, chapter 7 section of the larger section. It's entitled, Who's on Trial? Who's on Trial? Now, I'm calling it this because if you recall our scene in the book of Acts here, we have this proto-deacon Stephen who Acts chapter 6 said is operating, he's ministering around Jerusalem. It says he's full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom. He's actually performing the miraculous as he's ministering in Jerusalem. All of this, and due to his preaching and teaching concerning Jesus, some men from the synagogue of the freedmen, if you recall, they have actually come, stirred up the people, stirred up the elders of Jerusalem, and they've brought Stephen before the Sanhedrin, before the Jerusalem council, where here, Stephen in our text is now standing trial before the Sanhedrin, before the council, and they're putting him on trial to answer some accusations. Um, If you recall, the accusations that were brought against Stephen was that he was blaspheming Moses and he was blaspheming God. And they kind of clarified exactly how was he doing that. They said he was speaking against the holy place, meaning the temple, and he was speaking against the law. So this is where we're at. Stephen on trial. If you notice there in verse one, it says the high priest said to Stephen, are these things so? Are these accusations true? Now, Stephen is now given the opportunity to defend his theology, to defend his preaching of Jesus Christ. And what we're going to do, flip me, flip me with me real quick, maybe a page over, maybe two, to Acts chapter 7, verse 51. Because, as I said, although Stephen is in fact on trial, what's going to happen here is that Stephen is actually going to flip the script and he's going to put his accusers on trial. These Jews that he's standing before are actually the ones who are going to be held in contempt. Verse 51 will say, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, 
You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of, the, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So, I read the summary statement by Stephen at the end of this large historical sermon because I really think this is key to grasping the significance of everything that Stephen says in all this history that he's recounting before the Jews. This is, this is the argument that he's building to, is that these Jews always resist the Holy Spirit. Um, if you've ever worked through Acts chapter 7, if you've ever read through that in your yearly Bible reading, you may have struggled to, to wonder why, why Stephen recounting all of this history before these Jews. Um, why, why is he, what's he picking you know, certain high points from Israel's history? Why is he not picking some? Uh, but Stephen is not simply giving a history lesson, and that should seem obvious because these Jews, the, the Sanhedrin, certainly know the history of Israel. So he obviously has a reason for doing that. But what he's doing, he's recalling just a litany of examples uh, of God's redemptive acts, God's redemptive revelation that he's graciously, graciously extended to his people Israel, all of which the Jews have misunderstood and misapplied. And, and Stephen's laying these things out before him, just as verse 52 says that we just read. All these revelations were announcing beforehand the coming of the righteous one. But what has Israel done? Israel has continually and perpetually idolized the types, idolized the shadows instead of looking forward to what all of those types and what all of those shadows pointed to. Israel had found their rest in a, in a plot of land. Israel found their rest in their ability to keep the law instead of looking for this one to come. Um, Stephen's going to get into the historical uh, accounts in mentioning people like Abraham, Joseph, Moses, David. And what's, and what's tricky, if you're just reading through Acts chapter 7 and you don't know the summary statement that we just read in, in uh, Stephen's point, is you're going to kind of wonder why he's mentioning all of these things. Because as he's mentioning Abraham, as he's mentioning David, as he's mentioning Moses, he doesn't explain uh, the theological significance of those events. Uh, he just lists them out as if it's, kind of, it's supposed to be kind of obvious as to what the Jews had missed. So that's why I wanted to go look at the summary statement. The summary statement is you Jews are always missing God's point in what he's been revealing to you. So that's going to be our task. We're going we're gonna to read some really big chunks uh, these different historical accounts that Stephen references, and then we're going to take all of the revelation that we have from Jesus and the apostles where they describe the theological significance and, and, and they describe how we were to understand what was going on with Abraham and David and Moses and what God's point was with all of these prophets and all of these godly men. And we're going to see that the Jews have been missing the the whole point of the Old Testament, which is 
the coming of the righteous one, the coming of the Messiah. So that's what we're going to do. As I said, it's going to be a lot of text. I'm going to read a lot of text. But really, I think even though he's recounting large sections of, of historical data, there's going to be one big takeaway, the one big point for why he's mentioning these different examples. So, with no further ado, example number one from Stephen is Abraham. Abraham. I know we, we talked the other day about how fast we should read our Bible, right? Well, we're going to read a lot of text today, but I, as I thought about that, I thought, well, we should kind of have a clear conscience about this because if you think about it, as Stephen's preaching this sermon to these Jews, he's not stopping at every example like we're going to do and giving a little explanation, right? He just preached this sermon, and that's how the Jews would have received it. So in one sense, this section is, is it's kind of fitting that we're just going to be reading through it and moving through it rather quickly. But we will stop and do explanations. So verse 2, Stephen's example of Abraham. It says, And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And he said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and he lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. So here's example number one, the calling of Abraham. And what would be the misstep of the Jews? In what way were they, are they resisting the Holy Spirit when it comes to this revelation and, and God working with Abraham? Well, if you notice, and if you recall one of the aspects of the accusations that the Jews brought against Stephen, back from chapter 6, verse 13, they said, this man never ceases to speak against this holy place. The Jews, when they heard Stephen's preaching, Stephen's teaching, it didn't land with them, it didn't resound to them, they didn't like what he was saying because the Jews had come to idolize, and I'm going to use that word a lot because this seems to be the extent that they took these things. That's why they didn't want Christ. They were completely fine with what they had. Um, they, they had grown to idolize the temple by extension Jerusalem and by an extension all of Israel, the land. They, they'd come to see this as being the, the pinnacle of God's revelation, the pinnacle of God's blessings. They didn't need a Messiah. They didn't. They they had come to idolize this this soil of Israel. But if you look at the example of Abraham, God graciously called Abraham not when he was in the land of Israel, but where was he? Verse two said in Mesopotamia. Uh, you know that that Abraham is from Ur, the Ur of the Chaldeans, which is. Does anybody know where that is today? What land today does that 
correspond to? Where was God being very gracious to Abram in calling him? It's Iraq. Iraq. God was calling this man out of Iraq. Not, not from the Holy Land, but from Iraq. And Abram wasn't one of God's uh, faithful at this time. The book of Joshua, I uh, have the reference. Joshua 24.2 explicitly says, you don't have to turn there, but it says that Abraham's family was idol worshipers. They were idol worshipers. And I just looked up the, the Chaldean religions. The Chaldeans were polytheists. Not surprising that they were, but Abraham's family were polytheists. And, and they had a chief god. I don't know how to pronounce it. It's N-A-N-N-A, like Nana. It was the god of the moon, the moon god. And so Abram would have been bowing down and worshiping the moon out in, out in Iraq. And this is where God is gracious to this man Abram and calls him, calls him to himself. Um, so... The, the point is that there's nothing innately special about the land of Israel, about the soil of Israel. God is gracious wherever He wants to be gracious. And this is where He called Abraham, a, a, a polytheist pagan bowing down to the moon. God was gracious to him in Mesopotamia. Now, it is very true that Father Abraham was promised the land of Canaan. But... As our text here reminds us that all of these covenantal blessings that God had given to Abraham, Abraham received without ever owning a piece. It said not even a foot of the land in verse 5 did Abraham receive in his lifetime. Now, that's important as these Jews should be thinking back to their father Abraham, the father of the faith. Um, that Abraham never himself, who the promise was given to, actually even had any of this land, but yet he had all of the blessings. More significantly, as the book of Hebrew tells us, right, in Hebrews chapter 11, that all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 15, Genesis chapter 17, Abram, Abraham recognized that this land promise had a uh, a spiritual fulfillment, uh, an eschatological, a future fulfillment that Abraham was not even looking for this, this plot of land. Abraham was looking for a heavenly land and that's what he received, the book of Hebrews tells us. So by the grace of God, somehow Abraham all the way back in the, book, in the beginning of the book of Genesis understood that even this land promise had a future greater Fulfillment, And he realized that and he appreciated that. He did not, as these Jews had come to do, idolize the land. So as Stephen is found preaching around Jerusalem and he's certainly regurgitating the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of the apostles, he's probably saying things like this temple is going to be destroyed. The meek will inherit the earth, not just... Israel, the Jews shouldn't have been stumbled uh, as, uh, by these teaching, as, as the, even the example of Abraham, the father of the faith. God's grace was never restricted to the, the land or to this spe- specific temple. Um, they weren't able to accept the reality that in Christ, those who worship in spirit and truth can worship anywhere. 
the Jews couldn't accept these kinds of truths. Now, the next example we can see from Abraham, verse 8. It says that God gave him the covenant of circumcision. The covenant of circumcision. Now, this is certainly, admittedly, a strange covenant, right? A strange covenant sign, at least. This was given back in Genesis chapter 17, the covenant of circumcision. And that was given in correlation to this covenant which God made with Abraham, whereby he promised him, as you recall, that his descendants would be as many as the stars in heaven and that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through Abraham's seed, singular in particular. And so God's promise from the beginning was not to simply bless the nation of Israel singularly, but to bless the nations, plural. If you go back and look at Genesis chapter 17, verse 13, even the foreign slave who was purchased by an Israelite, a foreign slave from another land was to be given the covenant sign of circumcision. And so we see from the very earliest pages that God is impartial in His, in his grace. He's giving His grace to these foreigners, to these foreign slaves, to the least of those, all of these things that the Jews had issues with. The, the Jews idolized their race despite the fact that God had given this multifaceted witness that, he, that God was gracious to all. God would accept all that came in to the covenant people. The Jews hated this. They, they, they missed God's intention that the gospel of the Messiah was to go out to all the nations. It was simply to be beginning at Jerusalem but it was to go out to all the nations. The Jews had missed all of these things. The next example, second part of verse 8, 8b, and I'm going to read through verse 16 here. It says, And so Abraham became the father of Isaac, circumcised him on the eighth day. Isaac became the father of Jacob, Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. On the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem. And laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. So our next example is the patriarchs, the precious patriarchs, the heads of the twelve tribes of Israel. And what a great example of faithfulness that the twelve leaders of the twelve tribes show to God's purposes. This great example they set for the Jews to come. They actually attempted to kill 
the very one who God was going to set up as his deliverer for his people. The patriarchs betray the very deliverer that God would send to save them from this certain destruction, from a horrible destruction, from famine, from starving to death. And this is relevant because this is the exact same error that the Jews during Steve, the Jews that Stephen is talking to, this is the error that they're presently committing, committed because they have just killed God's deliverer. They have just killed the one who God sent to deliver his people. They're making the same error. And similarly, God raised his deliverer out of the pit to rule over his people. As with Joseph, so he did with Christ. And so the Jews again are persecuting a deliverer sent to them by God. And what they're what they're missing, if you catch this misplaced understanding of their place of worship in, in the land. God was gracious to the patriarchs, not only in the land of Israel exclusively. In the land of Israel there was great famine. They were struggling, but God redeemed them in Egypt through a bunch of pagans. God was gracious to His people even in that place. And so at some point you would think the Jews would start to, to catch on these themes of how God has been showing them literally for centuries that He can be gracious to His people in any place and in any way. His grace isn't restricted to the land of Israel or to the temple What's another example? This is a big one. The next example that Stephen's going to mention. This time, it's Moses. The great Moses. The fathers of Israel would never misunderstand or mistreat Moses, right? Well, verse 17 says, But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. Seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. So that's... A part of the section here from the book from uh, from Moses, and so we're going to take a break here and consider Stephen's logic for mentioning 
the first 40 years of Moses' life? Well, it goes like this. Moses, protected by God as a baby in Egypt. He's mighty in words and deeds. And he's come to his brethren, the Israelites, to be their deliverer. And yet, once again, the Israelites reject the Savior that's sent to them. Does any of that ring a bell? Does that sound familiar? It's the very same situation that the Jews of Stephen's days find themselves, yet this time with one greater than Moses. Again, the Jews are rejecting the one sent to them. Now, after spending the second 40 years of Moses' life in exile, so this section's broke down, the commentators show Moses' 40, 40, 40 years of his life. First 40 years, he was being raised in Egypt, tried to uh, come and be the deliverer of his people. Then for 40 years, he's in exile. Now, in verse 30, the last 40 years of Moses' life, I'm going to read all the way down to verse 43. It's a big chunk. Verse 30 says, Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness at Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their groaning, and I've come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man, this man led them out performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him. But they thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol, and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to the worship of the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets, did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Rephon, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Now, there's a lot there. There's a lot to cover for sure, but what are the big blows as Stephen's just recounting this history to the Jews before him, what, what are the blows that are supposed to land upon Stephen's hearers? Well, 
It's all these realities that the great I Am had in fact revealed Himself to Moses and called Him to be the Deliverer. God's intention is to deliver His people through the intermediary Moses. He appeared to Moses in the burning bush. Mount Sinai, He appeared to Moses, called Him, right? All the people heard it. All the people heard the thundering. Before their very eyes, God called Moses. He gave Moses to perform the abilities to perform all these miraculous. God had certainly chosen His servant, Moses. And again, despite all of this, as always, the Jews continued to harden their hearts to God's mode of deliverance. They, They chose idols instead. And this seems to be correlating with all the the issues that the Jews had with the destruction of the temple. The Jews idolized what they had made with their own hands. They made a calf. They loved the way that the calf looked. They loved the work of their hands. They worshipped it. They built this great temple. It was beautiful. Remember, the disciples admired it. And they idolized these things that they made with their own hands. And as a judgment, God's going to send them back into bondage. And so the essence of what Stephen is saying here is that, again, you're missing your deliverer just as your fathers also always have. You say that you're Moses' disciples. Well, remember that Moses spoke of another. He said that God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. And so, believe it or not, Sanhedrin... You are not listening to Moses. You're rejecting the messages of those whom you say you follow. Now, last example. Verse 44. Here, we're going to see again the idolizing of the temporary. The Jews are idolizing the temporary, the things made with their hands instead of looking to the eternal that the temporary is supposed to be pointing them to. It's the last example, verse 44, I'll read down to verse 50. Stephen says, Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. And so it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Verse 48, very significant. Yet, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is this place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? That's Stephen's last point and last argument. And I think this is the most devastating argument uh, if you think about it because the point Stephen's able to make here is not that the Jews have simply missed some typological fulfillment, right? Or they've not seen the 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 fulfillment of some like obscure Old Testament passage, right? But what they've missed as they've idolized this temple is something that 
their scriptures that the old covenant covenant explicitly said the the old covenant itself explicitly says that this shouldn't be idolized that this isn't going to contain god that this isn't going to be the end all of worship and they missed that if so first let me read first kings chapter 8 verse 27 because i say this is explicit because at the very dedicate solomon built the temple And at the dedication ceremony, Solomon himself says this about the temple as he's uh, dedicating it, as he's opening it up as a place of worship. 1 Kings 8.27, Solomon said, Will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven in the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. So Solomon understood that this house wasn't the end all of, of God's worship or or where god would dwell and i say it's explicit because not only does solomon recognize recognize this but god himself explicitly said in the passage that we read from verse 49 there uh stephen's quoting isaiah 66 1 where god himself said i'll read it again heaven is my throne the earth is my footstool what kind of house will you build for me says the lord or what is the place of my rest Did not my hand make all these things? I read all that to say that the Jews should have known that the temple wasn't the end all of worship for God. God could not be contained in a building built by human hands. And so, just as with all these other things, the Jews had simply missed it. They had failed to even recognize explicit statements from their very scriptures they had failed to actually listen to the words of moses where moses prepared the people for the coming of this messiah and because they misinterpreted all of the the all of what god was doing by talking about where worship would happen where god could be worshiped what was to be expected and not just what but who was to be expected they their misinterpretation, their hardness of heart with all of these things that God had revealed, you sum all that up and they did not see Jesus as being the Messiah. They, they were totally looking for something else. They were totally content, worst of all, with what they already had, which was a man-made temple and some dirt and their, what they thought, righteous law-keeping. They were content with with all of that. And because of all that misinterpretation and hardness of heart, the judgment of God comes upon Israel and comes upon the Jews. And we end here in our text where Stephen, as a faithful evangelist, he doesn't fail to mention this hard and heavy truth of this judgment that's coming upon these Jews. Because we're back in verse 51. I've read it already, but we'll read it again. Stephen summarizes here. He said, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. 
This is why I entitled the passage, Who's on Trial? Right? The Jews brought Stephen before them to sit and judge Stephen. Well, Stephen is judging them for all of their hardness of heart and misinterpretation of their very scriptures and ultimately for missing their, their Messiah. Stephen says it's not he who's guilty, but it's funny. It's all these recipients of God's word, the, the Jews who had God's law, who from the very beginning have consistently without fail They've perverted and rejected the revelation that God had graciously been giving to them through the prophets. The Jews failed to keep the law. The law is a tutor to lead us to Christ. If you don't come to Christ, you have not kept the law. And so, again, there's just these repeating themes in the Bible, and even in the book of Acts, it's just the same thing over, over and over and over what happens when you make irrefutable biblical arguments to those who even know the Bible? They all repent, right? When you make the perfect biblical argument, everybody realizes their hardness of heart and humbles themselves and repents. Not usually. Verse 54 now, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, and they stopped their ears, and they rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Well, don't feel too bad for Stephen because the Bible says that precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Now, if you, if you, you can read through Stephen's sermon and you can think, oh, this is great. Stephen's, you know, showing his relationship and making this bond with these Jews that he's speaking to. He's recounting all this history that they share. But then you get to this section here, and many people cringe at the harshness of Stephen's words here to these Jews before him. I, I could probably say most, if they had that opportunity before this Sanhedrin, probably would have said something. If somebody from today would have go back then and be found in that place, they probably would have told the Jews, well, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, right? That's usually people's default message to, to rebellious sinners. But here, the Spirit ensured that, that Luke, who wrote this account, would include the fact that Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit when he spoke these words, these very words of judgment. Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit. And beyond that, 
this faithful evangelist was blessed with a beatific vision this side of glory. Does anybody, what's the beatific vision? What does that mean? Anybody heard that phrase? He saw the Lord, which the Puritans talk about the beatific vision where when we get to heaven, we get to see God. Like that's what it's all about, the beatific vision, the beautiful vision where we get to see God. Well, Stephen wasn't dead yet. God blessed him with the beatific vision this side of glory. And what did he see? He saw the Lord of glory himself arose from his throne in honor of his servant's faithfulness and his faithful proclamation to these Jews, which included the judgment coming upon them from God. And so Stephen's sermon, it cost him everything. Stephen's sermon gained him everything. Interesting how that works, right? So I know the text mentioned Saul here. We're gonna, we'll get to Saul next time, but in general, from a high level, I'm just hoping that, you know, starting with the end, going to the conclusion statements of Stephen to see that his whole point in all this is that the Jews always missed it. They always, they misunderstood, they misapplied all of this revelation that God was giving to them. And so I'm hoping that by making that point first, and as we read through all those examples, that maybe this section of Scripture now makes a little more sense to you when you come to it. Um, so the Stephen's sermon really isn't so much just a history lesson. It is that, but it's really like a covenant prosecution against these Jews who didn't see the purposes of their Old Covenant scriptures. They had not kept the Old Covenant. They idolized the types. They idolized the temporary. And they weren't looking for the eternal. They weren't looking for the consummation of all of the purposes of of what God was pointing to. So, by way of application, this was a tricky one, I thought. But what was the error of the Jews? Well, I mean, it's a couple things. In one sense, they idolized the temporary. That's really kind of... By idolizing the temporary, they missed what God's greater purposes were. That was their error. They idolized the here and now, what they had, what they made, what they could touch, what they could see. And so I thought, we mustn't, as the people of Israel always did, we mustn't idolize the blessings of God that are given to us to point us to His Son. We aren't to idolize the temporary. We mustn't take our blessings of prosperity and freedom and worship these things. We mustn't take our health that we are blessed with and worship our bodies. We mustn't take the gifts that we have, our abilities, and worship ourselves. Everything we've been given was given for the glory of Jesus Christ. And so we're to use the blessings of God for that intended purpose. And we just always have to be wary of loving the the temporary. We always have to be careful because being an American and being having the prosperity that we do share, there's so much temporary. We have so many physical, temporary, financial freedom. We have so many blessings that we can idolize. And I don't think these Jews were self-conscious of how they had become to idolize. These things were given by God. These things were beautiful, right? But 
they idolize them. And so to close, we all have a day coming, a day like Stephen had, where we will stand before the Lord Jesus. We will all stand before the Lord Jesus. And that day is either going to go like it would go for these Jews, or we will be welcomed into the fellowship with our faithful brother, Stephen. It's going to be one or the other. And so what, or, in, or better said, who we worship will determine what kind of fellowship we have on that day. So let's worship the Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Well, Father, keep us, Lord. We, you've been very gracious to us, Lord, but you were very gracious to these Jews as well who had missed it all. Save us, Lord, from ourselves. Save us from our idolatry, Lord. Help us to take all these blessings that we have and use them for your glory alone, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.